Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting Podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 26 and we have Marco Bloom joining the show. Marco is Director of Trading at Pinnacle. Marco has built a bookmaker that is the benchmark for all others to follow, offering the lowest margins, the highest limits and a policy of welcoming winners. This episode is a deep dive into the thoughts, philosophies and strategy that Marco uses and has used to become one of the world's most successful bookmakers. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. The Betfair exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. Play the game within the game and join today. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and please support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Gamble responsibly. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with Marco Bloom. Marco, thank you very much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, Jake. You know, pleasure to be here. So, Marco, you're at the top of the top at a very big sports book. So, do you want to start before we get into that uh, about yourself and some of your background? Maybe, you know, your teenage years and how you got involved with betting, or if and when you got involved with betting. Yeah, sure, no problem. So, I started my uh, gambling career in poker. Uh, actually, probably most people whom who know me might know me that I used to be a professional Magic the Gathering player. Magic the Gathering being a professional uh, card game. It's not an eSports in that sense, but people now call it eSports, you know, funny enough. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a strategy game, a uh, collectible card game. Um, and I played it professionally for, uh, I think, like three, four years um, between probably the ages of 20 and 23, 24. And uh, after that, I, I went into a poker. So I played online poker for a while, then went into a offline poker, brick-and-mortar casinos, and by that time, after I was like probably 27, 28, a few of the uh, people that I played Magic the Gathering bit, bit went into sports betting um, and were actually customers of Pinnacle and did quite well at Pinnacle. And so eventually the old owner and them got talking and they started doing something for Pinnacle and the owner seemed to like it because he asked uh, if, if these people had some uh, recommendations. And that's how I got involved with Pinnacle that's a little bit the story that I had to, to come to Pinnacle. I actually was never a, a sports better myself, nor did I have any sports betting experience before I joined Pinnacle. I'd just been in the gambling space or in the gaming space. Um, I studied math and computer science. So I was always interested in numbers, but I was never a sports better before. So Magic the Gathering, the card game, I spent about 45 minutes trying to understand it myself. It was unusual for me based on my limited experience with card games but i got a sense of what it's about and do you want to just take us through some of the i guess strategies from magic the gathering if you can and, and how they apply to some other whether it is card games like poker or even sports betting or if any of that can be applied uh, across different betting platforms yeah sure so 
Magic the Gathering um, is actually a, it's called a collectible card game. So the way the game works is imagine you're playing chess, but instead of the normal amount of figurines, you know, like a, a pawn or a queen, you have now the options of, you know, 10,000 different figurines that all move slightly different. But you can only bring, let's say, 12 or 15 um, to, a, to a game of chess. So what you're doing is you're trying to come up with a strategy. You're picking some figurines that move in a certain way that is conclusive for your strategy. You maybe try to anticipate what your opponent is bringing. So in, in terms of Magic the Gathering, you're building your, you're building your deck. Um, you're, you're coming up with a strategy, maybe an aggressive strategy, maybe a defensive strategy. And uh, you're building cards around it, and you try to, you try to anticipate uh, what, the, uh, what the opponents will bring. And, and so you're learning a solid... Uh, game theory right you're learning you're learning game theory in a sense of like okay what do what do i think that he has what do i think that i have and so on and so on you know this going into poker right translates quite easily right poker is all about you know what does he think that i think that he thinks that i think and so on have in poker you start with basic theory you know what's the holding of my card and then so on so these are all like solid uh, game theoretical backgrounds that you learn not from the uh, theoretical side you know and we're not talking like the mathematics necessarily behind it but from the intuitive side so when i first came into sports betting uh, a lot of these things were quite naturally applicable to the sports betting world i consider I consider what we do as Pinnacle not much different than playing a game, you know, to some degree. Right? We're offering a line on both sides, and customers can can pick if they want to wager option A or option B, you know. And we have we have to uh, we have rules that we have to play by, you know. And so our customers have also rules that they have to play by. So we we play a, a game against each other to some degree, and 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 that's how I approach trading from day one. And then that's what's fascinated me about trading, and especially trading in the sense of sports betting. That's very interesting. That multi-step thinking that you went through, and and it's no surprise to most that you know a lot of chess players are very highly intelligent. Did you pick up a lot of that through your studies and doing mathematics, or was that sort of learnt throughout the the experience you gained at playing these game theory style games, whether it is Magic the Gathering or or poker and these types of games? I wish I would say I, I learned it through studying, but I actually had to learn it the hard way, playing games against other highly competitive people. You know. At the end of the day, I don't like to lose. So whenever I lost, right, I, I try to I try to understand what did I do wrong? How can I do better? Like, did I make poor decisions, or was it just variance? You know, one of the one of the uh, big fallacies in poker is like lots of people try to fool themselves that they are quote unquote unlucky. But but you know, I always try to see it in in a certain way that the only common denominator in all my games is myself. So if I continuously lose, I cannot put it on luck. I gotta, I gotta improve myself. I gotta get better at at whatever game there is. Yeah, and absolutely. So, so studying, I didn't study as long as I wanted to do. I like, I began my study during the dot-com boom. Uh, so it was in the late, the very late '90s in Germany. And uh, you know, sadly for me, I had some computer skills, so so I left studying to work in uh, in the in, in the dot com world a little bit, and then you know, at the end of the day, I, I never finished my study. I wish I would, in, in in retrospective. So take us to the day one when you went to Pinnacle and started working there. What was what was the business like back then? What were some of your expectations? I know you had a lot of experience, as you mentioned, in some other games, but when you got there, were you straight into sports betting from day one? Um, yeah, so I mean, the start of Pinnacle was a—it's it's actually a very strange story. So at that time, I, I live in Germany. I play full-time poker, and an older friend of mine uh, contacts me on IRC back in the day. For the people who are a little bit older, that—that's the thing we used before WhatsApp or or what the thing. Contacts me and said, "Hey, are you interested in a job?" And I said, "Yeah." 
what kind of job is it? He said, well, how about sports betting? I said, oh, I never did sports betting in my life. He said, oh, don't worry, you'll be good at it. <laughs> I said, okay, well, where is it? He said, in Curacao. I'm like, Curacao? I never heard about that. So I obviously went to Google, looked up Curacao, tiny island in the Caribbean. And, and so at this moment, I'm thinking, man, this must be a scam, you know? So yeah. I, I told the guy, nah, I mean, I don't know about this, you know? <laughs> told my parents, you know, hey, I, I got this offer. And they're like, no, don't go there. You, you're going to get robbed and they're going to steal all your money. But then when I started thinking, I'm like, what do I have to lose? Like, I don't have a, I don't have a job per se, right? My poker play can just be interrupted. If, and I also, at that, at that time, was affluent enough to pay for my own trip. So I felt like, well, they, they can't kidnap me there. So I'm like, oh, what do I have to lose? So I come down to Curacao, um, small island in the Caribbean, 150,000 people, obviously very warm, very nice. So I meet this, uh, you know, this friend of mine that I know from Magic. He brings me to the office. The office looks, I don't know, like something that I would expect from NASA. You know, computer after computer after computer, every computer, you know, three, four, five, six monitors. Um, no one really speaks there. Everybody look, look, looks at screens. Um, the screen is full of numbers going up and down. And I said, okay, okay. So my trainer comes up to me at, at day one. Um, a very nice fellow, and we got good friends yesterday. So he shows me the computer. He says, okay. This is uh, our, our admin. This is how you actually move the lines. I had no idea what a line is at that moment. But sadly, I have to meet my wife at the beach. So <laughs> I see you tomorrow. <laughs> Try to not mess it up so much. So oh, what, was, was like, what was the market position of Pinnacle back then on that day when you were told not to mess up the lines too much? So that was a very interesting time in, in Pinnacle's history. That was um, six months after Pinnacle left the U.S. market. So I, I joined Pinnacle uh, summer 2007, something around that. So Pinnacle basically just left the U.S. market. Um, Pinnacle uh, formerly was very famous for, for being very strong in the U.S. sports. Or, I mean, we're still strong in the U.S. sports, but that was the bread and butter of Pinnacle. At that time, Pinnacle had almost no soccer offerings. You know? But the, uh, the owner back then decided, uh, okay, well, the future is in soccer. That's what the world likes. Um, we need, we need to get into soccer. So we need to get new guys in who, who can help us trade the soccer. So so we were like – the generation of, of, of traders that were hired with me were the, the first generation of, of new traders that got infused into the soccer um, world. So all of us traded soccer for the first few years, and now soccer is quite obviously the largest product that we have. You know, like every other bookmaker. So that's that's basically the the story. I went from trading soccer into uh, something that we call uh, growth sports, um, and then from growth sports I went to become the trading director. So after after trading soccer for a while, the the owner wanted. I think I was it was a handball world championship. So he went to the to the floor and said, "Hey, anybody here knows anything about handball?" I said, "Yeah, I, I played handball when I was young." He said, <laughs> "Okay, how would you like to trade the world championships?" I'm like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. So I, I started doing this, and uh, the owner, the owner liked what I did, and said, hey, you want to take care of all these small sports? We have all these small sports: volleyball, badminton, water polo, you know, and and we're not making much money with it, and and the interest of the of the clients is not that big, but. I, the owner had a feeling that he wants to grow some of these sports, you know, and he felt like uh, he needs a person who who can oversee them all. So he put me in charge of that. So, so I did that. For, yeah. So I'm I'm sure, and this might be confirmation bias, but I'm sure when you say 
you know, you took on this, you took on that, and you might have done a good job. I think you probably did a very good job. I want to get your thoughts on what value you place on sporting knowledge. When the owner comes up and says, do you know what handball's about? And obviously, if you've grown up in Germany, there's a good chance you do, or some of the other places around the world where handball is very popular. Do you place a large amount of emphasis on knowing the individual sport, or are you happy for someone who's never seen a game of handball or played a game of handball before to trade on handball? Uh, the second, pretty clearly. I don't, I don't actually care too much about sport knowledge. Like, what, like trading to some degree, the way that we do is, is some is is, a, is somewhat generic in that sense. It's all about how do you trade efficiently. Having sport knowledge is an added benefit if you can quantify it, which is is a big if. Many many people who know they or who believe they know something about a sport actually cannot quantify it. Yeah. You know, so the so the question is like in, in terms of maybe US sports or whatever, if uh, LeBron James is not playing for the Cavaliers, everybody knows it's bad for the Cavaliers. The question is how bad is it? Yeah. And and, and this quantifying is it like is, is LeBron James maybe worth five percent equity, two percent, seven percent? Big difference between all those numbers. So and, and so the real skill comes when you have sport knowledge and you can quantify it, and only very few people are actually able to do this demonstrate, you know, like over a longer basis. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was Taleb in one of his books talks about the. I think it's the green lumber fallacy. Yeah, where, green lumber fallacy. Yes. Yeah. So that that idea. But the funny thing is, with sports betting, almost anyone I've spoken to, you know, whether casually or professionally, they get involved mainly because they either love the sport, completely understand the sport, were very good players, very good coaches. It's it's not usual, certainly in sports betting anyway, where it's the other way around and they're prolific traders and they're experts at understanding, you know, the markets and the odds and all the different aspects that go into it and they just focus on their one key, you know, aspect that they know well in terms of the sports knowledge. So it's interesting that you say that in your in your, you know, perspective and what you've done that that's something that isn't as critical as I guess the those who are involved would say is. No, I mean I do have some traders who are absolute sport nuts. You know, they, they, they know everything about their sport or other sports. All they do is watch sports. I can honestly say that I think this year I haven't I have watched less than maybe four hours of sports. Yeah, I, okay. I, don't, I don't watch sports. I don't read sports. I don't like sports. <laughs> <laughs> the only sport I actually watch actively is eSports. That's the only sport I watch. I haven't seen a soccer game in basically 10 years. The only games I ever, ever watch are... Um, World Cup games, you know, maybe when Germany plays. But even that, I, I don't, I don't watch for the game. I just, I just watch it to root for Germany. But um, I'm not a sports fan at all. So we'll get. Actually, you know what? Let's go to esports now. We'll, I wanted to get towards the pinnacle model, but but we'll get to that later. Let's talk about esports and, and betting on esports. What's the? Obviously, everyone can you know Google it and see that growth is exponential and it's growing, growing, growing. But from your perspective in your business, is it growing sustainably? Is it a you know, stable marketplace where you can have professional esports betters, you know, emerging and creating a living, or is it still in the early stages? I think both, actually. I think it's still in the early stages, but but we do have. Uh, so to give you a little background, uh, we took our first recorded esports bet in 2010, and since 2011, which was the first full year, to to now, every year we have at least grown 100. percent Wow. So it's substantial now, and so. Um, we have professional bettors in esports, people who bet millions of, millions of dollars per month, per month, per year. 
Um, and we have esports specialists with betting with us. All they do is, is uh, bet esports. They're very good at it. They have a lot of information. They, they apparently do a lot of research. So esports is, is, is uh, becoming a real big sport. We have seen the first professional punters um, like dabbling into esports. You know, maybe maybe one of the professional punter clubs you know has some interest in it. So I, I think and then it's it's not too far off that professional. Uh, Punters uh, play a big role, you know, just like in soccer, like in basketball, like in all the other sports. Interesting. You mentioned before growth sports, and maybe it's a different definition um, for, you know, you working in Pinnacle, and it might be the badminton or table tennis type sports. But is esports trending to be, you know, the biggest growth sport for you in the next yeah. three to five years? So esports used to be in what we call growth sports, but it actually became so big that we that, we, that it's now a, its own department. And and to put it in perspective, the from from our perspective, the way we structure our trading is where we have tennis, we have soccer, we have US sports, we have growth sports, and we have esports. Wow. So to put it a little bit in perspective, how big esports is for us, that it, that it, that it deserves its own department. And so, what's the equivalent if you had to you know rank the one, two, three, four, all the way to one hundred type of sports. Is esports sitting around, you know, rugby, or is it what? What's the equivalent of, I guess, you know, volume on esports as opposed to some of the mainstream sports that we would all know and have watched? So esports is between number five and number seven for us. So all those categories you mentioned are probably the top five, and it's right up there. So, so I mean, the top ones are soccer, quite obviously, basketball, football, baseball, tennis. Um, and then I think it's already esports. Okay. Wow. Interesting. So esports is big for us. Well, I mean, the the limits that we have on some of these events are astronomers. You know, we have lots of events with small limits, like two hundred fifty dollars or five hundred dollars. Where we have lots of events with you know five thousand, ten thousand, even some events thirty thousand dollars. Incredible. Now, let's get into the pinnacle model. Then you're talking about the limits and stuff like that. So your high volume, low margin, right? That's the core aspect of your uh, your trading. You know, you nailed it. That, that's 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 who we are. Like we, we consider ourselves to be to be a uh, you know we're not we're willing to take every action that that that, that comes right. That's that's one of the specialties of us. We don't discriminate against uh, action. Many many sports books, as as you know, they cannot handle sharp customers. Um, so customers who are winning players in the long run. We at Pinnacle um, allow these people to find a home with us and bet with us, which is which which is a uh, very unique. So our model is based on we need we need lots of action, lots of volume. We have a rather small, rather little overround. So our margins are small. Um, from EPL, English Premier League, you're talking about one and a half percent to maybe we're topping out at maybe like three, four percent. Most of our soccer leagues are between the two and two and a half percent range. So high limits, high volume, low margins. So how do we make money? <laughs> First of all, we make money because uh, we, we're in it with our skin. So meaning like we have to trade successfully to make some money. We're trying to, uh, we're trying to have the best line available and we're trying to utilize all the information that's been presented to us by wagers to make our line better and better and better. So that's why we actually don't discriminate against sharp customers. We're actually trying to utilize the information to make our line more efficient. That in a nutshell is the pinnacle model. So, in how many of your markets or events do you get uh, what the, some people call a green book? So you've got, you've obviously got your inherent margin, which is very low. Are you balancing almost, that action, or is it almost never that you have a almost never? 
So is I mean, that on purpose? Um, it is both. It is on purpose and by design. Um, just if you to to go green, um, you have to have high margin basically. Yeah. Our margins are just too low to go green. I mean, obviously it will happen. I'm not saying it never happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But usually, usually we are exposed on one side or the other. The second thing is we also like to gamble. We're not afraid to gamble if we believe we have an informational advantage. You know, meaning, you know, we have a strong feeling. Our research showed um, this this uh, this side might has value. Like we like to gamble, and uh, and it's just you know sometimes it plays out and sometimes it doesn't play out. That's just the way it is. So, who decided or when did you decide to be a high-volume, low-margin book? Was it from sort of inception? I guess it, it takes a while to build up to that, I would imagine. You can't just one day decide to take everyone because you're probably going to get burnt in certain circumstances. Was it incremental or does it grow organically? How did it evolve to be such a, I guess, world-leading, high-volume, low-margin book? Uh, it, it was done by inception, as far as I know. You know, Pinnacle was founded by by people who were actually betters themselves. So they were they were very successful high limit betters. And at one point they realized, well, instead of betting into a bookmaker, I can I can try to be the bookmaker and and basically bet against my clients. So in other words, instead of paying the margin, I can collect the margin. So that was basically the the founding principle from Pinnacle some odd 20 years ago now. And from there on, obviously, it developed quite a lot. But when I came to Pinnacle, this low margin, high volume, you know, uh, uh, product was, was 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 everywhere. That was that was the culture. That was the basis of everything we did in trading. So, to what extent do you use the information you gather from these professional syndicates or groups or or even single betters who are placing you know large bets with you? Do you? I guess to what extent do you go into profiling and understanding the the acumen behind those bets? Um, we don't we don't know why a customer wagered. We never know that, right? We cannot ask them. Mm-hmm. All we know is is that he wagered. So that's the only information we know. We know the customer wagered. the The customer decided that he believes he has equity on this wager. And now we, our job is to put it into the context of the game and the market, you know, and our position. Let's see, you know, if we are already exposed for $200,000, maybe we are fine with our position and we don't want to add on. Or if we are exposed for maybe $20,000, we might say, all right, I, I like this information. Let, let's try to build a little bit more uh, at this level. Or we might say, well, we're going to flip the position. So we were just, every wager basically adds to the puzzle. You know, a betting market is, is a giant jigsaw puzzle, and every wager adds adds to it. And some and some piece, puzzle pieces are more important, and some puzzle pieces are less important. So the the job of the trader is to understand: okay, what is the information that I have in front of me, and how important is the information that I have in front of me, and how do I utilize this? So this 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 can result sometimes in a in a wager of five thousand dollar moving the line a full amount, and sometimes it it will move the line zero. And it just depends on how much does the, the trader value the information at this very moment, given our circumstances. Okay. So when you're putting together your lines, how do you go about doing that? And you don't have to go into any proprietary strategies or anything, but are you trying to get half the action each side? Are you trying to shade it to the side you like the most and you can kind of predict where the, the money is going to be coming from based on a number of different factors? What are some of the things you think about when you're putting a line out and embedding, I guess, all the way up until to kickoff or start time? Well, most of the opening lines are rather poor. 
we try our best to make a good guess on the opening lines, but we know that you know our opening lines are rather poor, just because we don't do a whole lot of research on the opening lines and and how this plays out. We we, we try to focus our research on how 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 we how we trade. So that means uh, the opening lines usually have lower limits, you know, and are up rather early. So by the by by uh, doing time, the limits increase. But by then we have accumulated a little more information, so the line. You know, it's more solid. So, are we trying to are we trying to, to go for 50-50, or are we trying to anticipate? We're just trying to put up the best line possible, whatever that it really is. You know, if 50-50 comes, it's good for us. If it's one-sided and we anticipate it, it's good for us. If it's one-sided and we didn't anticipate, it's really bad for us. So, it's it's also like the opening line is is, is not that important. People put a lot of emphasis on the opening line. It's actually not very important. Okay. The opening line is just a starting guess. Yeah, you know, everybody is guessing. We know that our customers are, are better at guessing at us, so you know, so uh, that's why lines in the beginning move quite a lot, and that's why lines closer to kickoff actually don't move a lot anymore. Is there ever one group or a syndicate or or even an individual who can, I guess, start betting with you at a certain time, and you can use that information much more than anyone else, or they're the the holy grail, or? Is it just a combination of all the smart betting and all the smart information you can get that helps you with your trading? It's certainly a combination because we never know why somebody wagers with us. We don't know why the sharp customer wagered with us. Maybe maybe he wants to hedge another wager. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he has a bad day. We just don't know. Yeah. Certainly, there's, there's sharp customers who have more information value attached to them because they do more research and, and you know their, their bets have more impact. But on the other hand, we just don't know. We always have to consider everything in circumstantial. Well, what's the market like? What's our position like? You know, what does the customer usually do? You know, where do we want to be? Do we have an opinion? Do we like a certain side? Is the customer agreeing with us? Is he disagreeing with us? What did other intelligent or sharp customers do? You know, it's 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 always very circumstantial. So it's, it's there's not a simple A B C you know matrix that you could put on top of this where you can just say, okay, well if this happens then you do this. It's always very circumstantial. So one question, this might be a selfish one, but I've always seen that you know you go on sites where there's punters or you know anyone who's public facing say I've been doing this for 30 years, I've been doing this for 17 years, I've been winning on football since you know 1984. In your in your sort of experience. Do these pro punters last forever? Are they outdated? Do their syndicates or groups become, you know, obsolete and they're not winning anymore and then they just disappear? Or, or can some people win for 10, 15, 20 years? Because it seems very, very difficult. Well, the best of the best can sustain long, long periods. Many, many people have high periods, which makes sense. So the way it works, like they come up with a strategy that the market has not incorporated they're now betting the strategy, they're making money, but eventually the market catches up to them, whatever the strategy is, and incorporates the information into the into their strategy. Meaning, maybe 20 years ago, you could make a lot of money betting on a baseball game if it rains or not, because no one incorporated weather information. Right, yeah. But by now, everybody knows that weather plays a role. Yeah. So your edge is gone naturally. This is this is one of the upsides of our business model, since we, we are not married to... Uh, one or two uh, specifically smart punters, we, we take everybody on. So if this guy loses his edge, then somebody else will gain a different edge and we auto- automatically will eventually shift to that guy. You know, So this this is one of the advantages with us. I always call it, I have an army of consultants at my disposal. Right. And I, and I, always, I only have to listen to the best consultants. 
Interesting. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. So I, I have a question. You mentioned the weather as as a factor. It seems like there's sort of three main elements that go into it. And I guess for those who are who are out there and are listening and want to find out what value to place on certain information, what value do you place on live information or even sports data that come in, uh, such as the weather or injuries or you know player changes, things like that? Then you've obviously got the bets are being placed, which is the idea of skin in the game. If someone's betting, you may not know why, but they're, they're betting. And then obviously what the market's doing and the odds around different bookmakers around the world. Um, how valuable, valuable are each of those elements, I guess, to generate your market and your opinion? Do you place a higher value on one more than the other or is it always a combination? Um, so lineups are extremely important extremely important you want to know if a, if a team has an offensive lineup you want to know if the team has a defensive lineup in soccer very very important injury news very very important if, if key players uh, in, in basketball don't play has a significant impact on the line um, weather um, is sometimes hard to quantify extreme weathers are very important and then it's the question how can you quantify what does mild rain actually do you know, like what is the impact? Does it mean the game is slower now? Um, certainly, heavy rain has an influence, or snow has an influence. But with weather, it gets a little bit tricky. You know, you have to really understand how does this weather benefit one or the other's team play style. Obviously, like a bookmaker like us, with you know, we're offering thousands and thousands of events. We cannot look into every one of these information. That's what our customers do for us. Some some customer might specialize in a third or fourth division league. You might study the weather and then make, make some, maybe build a model based on it, embed it into us. And we're going to incorporate the information to make an outline better. So that's what I mean with the consultancy idea. This guy is basically our weather consultants for the fourth or third division league. But instead of having a direct contact with him, I just, I just pay him uh, through, through him you know, being a profitable wager, a profitable better. Yeah, it's very interesting. So what about when you have all this information and you find a number that's incredibly way off? And I guess an example might be in NFL, I've heard people say in snow games that the under-over should have been 20. And obviously that's a silly number. And even professionals will say, you know, you couldn't get this number low enough for an under-over total. Even if you've got all this information and you know it's right, will you always trend back towards what the market's doing and not be way off? Or will you happily back your opinion even though you know you're going to get a lot of people who are betting on trends or betting on historical numbers the other way, and you're going to have a ton of money on a certain position. Well, we are part of a market, and and you, you the, the only way to uh, to fight a market is by putting up your own money, because the market is going to fight you um, with arbitrage wages. So in this in the scenario that you described, if let's say we actually like the under, you know, that means now the trader makes a decision and says, how much do we want to play for on the under? whatever it is. So he he tries to to say, you know, I think that the under is value today. You know, the snow is not priced in effectively. I think the current price does not affect the weather, does not represent the weather impact enough. You know, I want to gamble. So his role role is now to accumulate overwagers at the best possible price for him. You know, if he if he just moves bluntly into the market, he might disrupt the entire market. Yeah. So now comes the trading skill. He needs to do it a little bit, uh, you know, smooth, softly. You know, take and and try to uh, build a p- position up that he wants uh, with the best possible prices. A quick note from our friends at Betfair. Ready for a different way of thinking? Unlike other operators, Betfair wants you to win. On the Betfair Hub, you'll unlock market-leading insights, strategies, models, and more. 
Master the game within the game. And join today at betfair.com.au with promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So take us through a typical day on the trading floor then. Let's say NFL Sunday if you're the US trader or, you know, a day of World Cup soccer matches when there's a group stage. I want to talk a little bit about in-play versus pre-match, but what are you? what's a typical day for, for Marco getting into the office in Curaçao with a, a full lineup of matches? So I'm, I'm going to use a World Cup day. So the way it works with the World Cup is uh, it actually uh, starts way before the World Cup. So way before the World Cup, uh, the head trader for soccer and the head trader for, for soccer life uh, and uh, a few of the other senior traders go together and we discuss our risk profile. We say, okay, what do we think uh, should be our risk profile for the entire World Cup? You know, so we determine what are our, what are our limits, um, what is our max positions, um, how much do we want to gamble for in sports, and so on and so on. So we sit down and discuss this all. Then once we agree on a number, um, we actually go to go to our to to the other executives, show them the risk profile, say, hey, this is what this is what we're going to gamble for, because you know, like. Gambling means you, know, you we can lose. Obviously, if we always would win, my job would be a lot easier. Trust me. <laughs> so, so we come up with a risk profile. Yeah. You know. Then once we have the risk profile established, we're going to talk to the traders. We're going to set up a schedule and say, okay, well, you trade this game, you trade this game. This is what we're looking for to gamble on average. You know, medium-sized position should be this. Big position should be that. Anything larger, you have to get confirmation by the head soccer trader or myself. So then, you know, day one starts. Actually, before day one. Um, we discuss all the matches. We discuss all the lineups. You know, let's say Spain plays Germany. We, we discuss the line. We discuss what potential uh, line movements we anticipate. Um, you know, we discuss are there any players who are questionable. We discuss you know, what could be a lineup that the that the coaches are going to go for. You know, is there some ambiguity in the coach? Could he could he surprise us? So we discuss all of these things. Then uh, trading starts eventually. So on a World Cup day, you know, normally I, I come in the office, uh, depending on where the World Cup is, maybe uh, four or five hours before the first game. But this time, uh, the, the traders are already long, long there. My head soccer guy is already there. So I come in and I start this discussion with him. And I say, hey, how's it looking? What's, what did the action do? So he gives me a small status report, says, all right, we got a lot of sharp information on Spain. You know, Spain looks like the side against Germany. Line has not moved yet. We anticipate a line move. And I say, yeah. okay, that's, that's interesting information. So what are you gambling for right now? He says, all right, we have a position of X. And I say, okay, well, how, do, how strong do you feel the information is? He says, very strong. And I say, okay, well, why don't we go X plus Y? He says, okay, so they, so now we're going to be we're setting a new uh, position. Yeah. And and uh, well, one hour later, let's say a disaster strikes for us, and the sharp guys are actually all on Germany. Right. Yeah. So we misread the game completely. So now you know him and I go back together and say, okay, well, we're exposed for this large amount of money on the wrong side of the game. What do we do? How do we get out of this? Is is there is there a smart way to get out of this? Uh-huh. And some and sometimes there is, and sometimes you know most often than not there isn't. To be quite honest, most often we we have we have, we 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 gambled, we got the worst of it, and now we have to get lucky. From there it goes into the, in, into talking to the life guy, uh, my 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 head life trader. You know we're discussing hey. In this game, there was a lot of late money on Germany. We anticipate, we thought Spain was, was the better team. We thought the line was not reflecting of this. But now, you know, it seems like a lot of sharp guys disagreed with us. They moved on Germany. So be, be careful. The move could continue in life. Okay. Now, we, might, we might not have seen the end of the move. So, and then the life guy takes over. And then uh, we watch it. 
Uh, maybe after a goal, after an injury, him and I get 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 quickly talk about it. Okay, well, this player, this player is red carded now. What do you think the impact is? Then we discuss it and then we continue. So that's a very typical, uh, you know, modus operandi for for World Cup games. That's awesome insight. So, what's the percentage of pre-match betting versus in-play betting? Ah. Uh, these big groups and syndicates and, as you call them, your army of consultants who are the smartest of the smart, are they playing right before kickoff? Are they playing in play? Are they playing both, largely in play? What's the, what's the trends or what's it look like for you in a typical you know, World Cup, for example? Yeah, so there's actually the consultants are split up quite nicely because we have some consultants who want to bet the early opening lines. They are happy to, to place wagers for, let's say, $1,000 or $2,000. Yeah. You know? And then we have some some of the bigger groups. They need to place fifty, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars with us to make it worth their time because they have overhead, they have their own quants, they have their own IT team. So betting two thousand dollars doesn't get them anywhere. Right. So you have like a nice little hierarchy of of of, uh, of these consultants on every stage of the game. Um, some consultants are pregame specialists. Some consultants are live specialists. Some consultants are corner specialists. Some consultants are red card game specialists. So you even have specialized consultants in there. <laughs> you know, we, we have everything under the sun. We have people who only bet the unders in certain scenarios. You know, they have an algorithm who detects value there. You know, everybody has their own special take on it and their own special advantage. On general, we expect the uh, live action to be bigger than the pregame action. Interesting. And I've read articles and I hear people talk about, you know, computers and bots and algorithms and all this stuff. Is it always that a human being is betting against Marco and Pinnacle or is it oftentimes a computer system that's automatically generating a bet? I mean, we, we do have a lot of uh, bots playing with us. I'm not going to lie about that. Um, but I, I, when, I, when I hear this, I hear the classic men versus machine mythos, you know, oh, it's me against the machine. But that's not really the, the way it is. It's, it's information value against other information value. Yeah. You know, when you place a wager, ask yourself, why am I placing the wager? What is my informational edge here? What do I believe is not priced correctly? You know, do I think the current line does not reflect the strengths of the team? It doesn't really matter if you place a, game, a wager against myself, against our customers, against another bot, right? It's all about placing value wagers yourself. So I think this this myth is a little bit overplayed, you know. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, there is a lot of 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 arbitrage going on, right? We are part of a market, you know. So if 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 one book cannot break out and move in a different direction without the market trying to uh, to stabilize the line, you know, some of the books have more market power. You know, market power is defined by limits and your risk appetite. That's really what it is. If the market thinks uh, a a game is a one goal favorite. And I believe it's a half a goal favorite. Well, I can move the entire market to my position if I want to. It's just going to cost me, I don't know, twenty, thirty, fifty million dollars in in uh, in risk. <laughs> Eventually, the market is going to come to me. Yeah. But I, but if I do this, I know I'm wrong. I know the market is smarter than me. The market the market has all information incorporated. So some bookmakers obviously have have better information and and thus have more market powers but those are usually the bookmakers who also have higher limits and a higher risk appetite so one more question about this model of bookmaking before we get into some general stuff why i talk to so many people and no one uses this model why do you think that is that it's so hard to replicate uh what you're doing it's really hard like every every few years somebody tries to replicate it and what they find is 
it's the learning curve is really, really, really expensive. To do this kind of model, what you have to do is you have to have high limits. You have to allow all kinds of people to be wagering with you. This means all the shops, all the abusers, everybody who, who, who everybody who's an angle sh- who has some form of an angle on you. And also, you have to be, you have to be in a market where there are established bookmakers like ourselves. Yeah. So automatically, every mistake you do, you're getting punished by people with a lot of experience, like us, for example. If you move the line the wrong way, or you're too slow to move the line, you're going to get a wager because you you're now in an arbitrage with Pinnacle. Yeah. You know, and that's the problem. Like the learning the learning period and the learning cost is too high. Like we we're doing this for 20 years now, so we have we have lots of traders. You know, we we, we know quite a lot about trading. We have lots of trading system. We we but we learned over 20 years. If you start this now, that's really hard. I mean, that's the question for everything, right? Why why can no one copy Amazon? Why can nobody copy anybody of the big guys? I mean, the the business model is is clear as uh, as clear as the sky. Well, why do you not copy it? Because yeah. it's just not that easy. No, that that makes sense. You talked a little about risk profiling and what you're willing to accept and, and the limits and stuff like that. In general, what is your approach to risk management? I guess risk in general. What's what is your mindset when you have those meetings and you know the executives get together? Are you what what what's a general approach for Marco? I like to gamble, to be quite <laughs> honest, and my traders would attest this. I, I like to gamble. I I believe in gambling in the, in, the, in the sense of I think gambling is somewhat of a service to our betters. Because if I like to gamble, it means I'm, I'm willing to stick up for my opinion, which gives the betters a chance to disagree with us, which then in the other sense gives them a more interesting line. No, I, I that sounds good. I'm sure all the betters out there are very happy to hear that. So I want to get your opinion on some of the hardest leagues to beat um, or the most efficient markets, essentially. Are we... Is it NFL? Is it NBA? English Premier League? Or, or what are some of the markets that you're finding or your team's finding that are most efficient and are becoming more and more difficult to beat over, over the long term? Well, I mean, there's no secret behind uh, what we believe is the most efficient league or the most efficient market because the most efficient markets with us have the highest limits and the lowest margin. Yep. You know, so if you take a, a badminton game, we have very high margin for us. <laughs> and very low limits. So we believe this market is very inefficient. If you now take the EPL, we have 1.5% margin on the spreads, and we are open for thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. So we believe this line to be very efficient. So in some way or shape or form, we, we are leveling the playing field again. Just because badminton is trivial, easy to beat, you also have to beat higher margins, and you also have to be uh, happy with lower limits. Yeah. Uh, EPL, on the other hand, which is very hard to beat, you, but if you can beat it, you can bet very big, and you only have to beat very small margin to be uh, to be proficient. So it's it's some form of level of leveling the playing field. Yeah, essentially, you're putting a premium on that information in badminton because there's probably not enough good information out there. So those Correct. those betters, yeah, exactly, they got to pay pay more, or they can bet less for that privilege. So, so what are some of the bet sizes you're getting when you mentioned thirty or forty thousand limits? Is that that person can place one bet at that limit, and then can they come back and place a second and a third and a fourth bet, or, or how do you how do you look yeah. at those limits? So, so our limits are wager based and not game based. So it's 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 only the, the limit for, for one wager. So if our limit is, you know would say ten thousand dollars, you can place ten, twenty, thirty, a hundred wagers of ten thousand dollars. You just have to uh, you just have to cut your wagers uh, in ten thousand dollars steps. This allows us to take your information and adjust the line underneath. 
You know, there's no guarantee that the line is going to stay stale after you place your wager. But there's no maximum limit per game. So some customers of us sometimes bet $300,000, $400,000, $500,000 on a game you know, because they have a strong opinion. And some customers obviously bet $1 on a game. So we have a, we have a lot of different customers for that. Yeah, it's interesting. So I want to get your thoughts and maybe even briefly on sort of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and this sort of stuff and its interplay with sports betting. Do you think that'll open up as we move forward to sort of more widespread acceptance of this type of, you know, cryptocurrencies and these things? Or do you think it's still a fair way off and and some of the concerns about KYC and AML and those type of things are going to hold it back in terms of sports betting? Well, I mean, I mean, first of all, I'm I'm personally very, very uh, involved in cryptocurrency myself, and I'm a big fan of cryptocurrencies. So that being said, um, in the context of Pinnacle being a licensed business, you know, the AML requirements and the KYC requirements are, are, are very serious uh, matters to consider when you talk about cryptocurrencies. So it's my my belief is that eventually uh, cryptocurrencies will find a solid home among the licensed bookmakers. But it might be a little bit off now. Um, we need to see what the regulators in Malta, in the UK, you know, what the actual regulations are going to be for for bookmakers like us to uh, to allow cryptocurrencies, you know, for our regular punters. We touched on esports a fair bit before, but I want to get a few other sports that you see that are trending upwards, you know, in the next few years, or maybe even downwards. Is there any that are sort of dropping off a little bit? Um, I know a lot of people here in the U.S. will talk about sort of small-time college basketball. They would love to get more than a very small bet down in, in Vegas if they're betting there and things like that. What are some of the things you're seeing around the world in terms of sports that are on the way up and maybe some that aren't going so well? Um, probably I would, I would – I mean, the college sports in the U.S. are definitely hurting. You know, with the U.S. being a close betting market and college basketball or college football, you know – not having much fans outside of maybe Canada, you know, basically completely unheard of in Europe. Definitely the the, the college sports are hurting. Tennis is on the up on the upswing. Tennis being a true global sport. Tennis also getting a, a decent following in Asia. You know, I think I think tennis will be growing co- constantly over the years. The NBA is growing. The NBA has a lot of fans in the Asian world. I actually think the NFL is doing quite well now with the. Uh, with the games in London, I think they're doing a good job there to attract a different market. And soccer, obviously. I mean, I don't think soccer will be uh, dethroned for the next few years. But the big, the big hope right now for, for you know, for us and probably many, maybe for other bookmakers as well is esports. I think esports has not peaked yet. You know, I think there's a lot more growth room in esports, and I, I believe wholeheartedly that in five to ten years, the biggest uh, sports star in the world will be an esports player and not a regular sports player. Wow. Yeah, no, that's very interesting, especially when those esports players who are, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, and they're superstars now in 10 years, what will that be like? And even that, just that generation of, of, of you know, esports players, and if they're involved in, in gambling, how that grows the market, and it's likely to all grow together. So that should be a, an interesting area. One more quick question on the future. What do you see the future for player props, derivatives, those type of markets in comparison to the the 1x2 and the head-to-head over-under typical typical markets? Do you see a, a large future for those derivatives or do you think it'll always be the top two or three markets that are existing now will stick, stol- stick solid for the, for the future? I'm, I was never a big fan of all the secondary or third-tier markets. I... I've watched the race in Europe, you know, for having like 
30 markets, 50 markets, 100 markets, 150 markets per game. But in reality, the vast majority of the volume, maybe like 90, 95%, are on spreads, 1x2 and over-unders. And the other markets, you know, are very niche. And sure, some people like it, but most bookmakers, you know, cannot price them efficiently. You know, that's why they... That's why they have to remove winning customers, and most bookmakers, you know, allow very low limits on those, and they're basically like a like a square trap to some degree. You know, I'm sure they're they're very happy if somebody bets, you know, a weird like how many throw-ins will there be between the 40th and the 60th minute <laughs> prop. You know, when when the over round is 12 or 15 percent. You know, I think the bookmaker is very happy about this wager, but I, I, it's not for pinnacle. And it's, it's not where I think the main focus are going to be. I think people will always be interested in who is going to win the match. I think that's the most interesting question, and I, I don't see it changing. I cannot, I cannot foresee that this question is, is less interesting than how many corner kicks will Messi score and will Messi make or something. I don't think you know, a prop like this will ever be as interesting as the simple question, who's going to win? Yeah, okay, interesting. Before I let you go, Marco, I just want to ask, what's the plan for you and I guess Pinnacle in the next, you know, one year, three years, five years? We've touched on a few things that might be at the forefront, but um, what's in general the plan? Well, we got some exciting stuff coming up. We got a, we got a brand new website coming up, um, hopefully for for the cup in the summer. You know, that that's uh, the new website uh, is shaping up fantastically, and I think our customers will like it. And secondly, we're, we're we're trying to get a little bit of a better footing in our business-to-business relationships. You know, we, we we think we can provide a lot of value to other businesses, to other bookmakers, to help them uh, run their lines a little bit more efficiently, and uh, and provide them with a better service than maybe they can they can get uh, right now themselves. Marco, I really really appreciate your time. What's the website for those who are interested in getting some more information, or even to to reach out to you and the team? What's the best way for them to do that? Can they jump on Twitter, or can they? They can jump on Twitter at Pinnacle Sports. They can go on our website, pinnacle.com, you know, or wherever they like to find us. We, it's, it's not. Just Google Pinnacle and you will find plenty, plenty of information about us. Awesome. Marco, I really appreciate the time. All the very best and I uh, look forward to meeting one day. Yeah, thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. The Betfair Exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. Play the game within the game and join today. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and please support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Gamble responsibly.